thank you very much. Everything. I was very um, delighted actually to be asked by um, Karen to come and um, speak to you because it's for a different audience. I normally talk to sort of other psychiatrists and epidemiologists and people who do sort of mental health. So it's really fascinating. I think it'll be really interesting to have your thoughts and comments from a from a different perspective about the work that I um, I'm going to talk to you about now. Um, so I'll just do a little bit of background, because I think you um, in this unit sort of think more about the sort of obesity end of things, and um, when I um, think about eating disorders, I, um, from a clinical perspective, tend to often think about um, anorexia and the sort of underweight eating disorders, um, although there is obviously, um, there are obviously a lot of eating disorders in people who are of normal weight or overweight. Um, and they're really surprisingly prevalent. So there's some recent work from Holland that suggests rates are about 6% in adolescent girls that are having some form of problem with their eating. Um, and in those sort of underweight patients that I see in clinic, there um, they also have very high mortality. So they have about a five-fold increase, five to six-fold increased chance of um, dying young. And they're very expensive. These are figures from um, BEAT, which is one of the big UK eating disorder charities, um, which is sort of demonstrating the costs both to the NHS and to the wider UK economy. Because people are um, obviously presenting to health services and getting help, but also because that's having a knock-on effect on their lives and they aren't um, working or contributing in the way that they might normally be doing. Um, So I got interested in... Um, the effect that schools might be having on this from a clinical perspective, um, which I'll talk about in a moment, but the um, UK press also sort of thinks this is a problem. This is an article from 2014. It says, you know, all girls' schools in the UK, eating disorders are a really big problem um, in this area. And certainly this is the sort of peak age at which eating disorders tend to present, around about age 15. So if you think about what is happening to young people at that time, there's a lot going on in their lives, but they are um, in school in that time, so you might think that school environment might have an effect on what's going on for them. And from a clinical point of view, I've worked in a couple of different areas as a um, registrar, so sort of a grade below uh, consultant, and it feels like there are schools where we get people with eating disorders from, um, and that kind of goes across different teams I've worked in. So I spent a while working in Bristol and Bath, and um, it's the sort of all-girls selective schools there that present patients into the eating disorder service. And in Oxford, it'll be um, schools like Oxford High, where it seems like we get a lot of referrals from there. And there isn't a huge amount of research to suggest whether that is sort of representative of um, an actual difference between schools or just something that we happen to be seeing clinically. There's a little bit of evidence from the US that disordered weight loss behaviours might vary between schools um, and that schools with more underweight girls are more likely to have girls who report that they're trying to lose weight. So I'm going to talk first about this um, paper which was in the International Journal of Epidemiology in April this year, which is looking at diagnosed eating disorders in schools in Stockholm. Um, And I'll talk about our findings, but also the sort of difficulties and limitations of this work. 
So if there is variation in rates of eating disorders between schools, even if that's sort of a real thing that, we're, you know, that, we're, um, that we think we're observing clinically and the Times thinks is a, is a thing, um, there are a couple of different reasons why that could be. And one is that it might be to do with the different kind of people who go to different sort of schools. This is called a sort of composition effect to do with the characteristics of the students. So we know, for example, that eating disorders are about 10 times, certainly in the case of the underweight eating disorders, more common in girls than boys. So if you have a school with, which is single sex, they've got twice as many girls, maybe you get twice as many eating disorders in that school as you would from a mixed school. And we also see this pattern of um, a sort of inverse to the normal pattern that you expect with um, mental health problems, particularly of increased rates of eating disorders in more highly educated um, families. So this is by um, parental education. As you can see, as parental education levels go up, rates of diagnosed eating disorders go up. This is also Swedish data from Goodman. Um, so it could be that we're just, you know, we get maybe see more eating disorders from these um, all girls uh, highly um, selective schools because they have more girls and they have more highly educated parents and it's just a fact of the composition. But it could be that rates might vary between schools because of differences between the schools themselves. That there's something about the school context that the school might be able to sort of influence that um, is different. So it could be that a girl in, who in one school might be alright in another school might find things um, harder. And I'm not saying that, that that would be something that a school would intentionally try to do. I can't imagine that a school would sort of set, set up to try and encourage its um, students to have any kind of mental health problem. But it might be a sort of inadvertent um, thing that, that the school environment is doing. Um, so I was doing some work with a team in Stockholm and we'd used the data um, that they have from their big record linkage studies to look at um, some other sort of more straightforward things. And they have got this big um, youth cohort within Stockholm County, which is Stockholm City and the sort of in, uh, surrounding um, area. And it's, it looks at 0 to 17 year olds at the beginning, and they've got kind of three quarters of a million um, people. And what they've done is they, everyone in Sweden has their own. Um, sort of unique identifying number which which gets used when they access health services or education and you can link it up with their family and also see when their family what their family has accessed in terms of services so it's very rich um, data set and we had a lot of different sources of diagnosis so the it's it's a kind of complex data set in that they keep on updating it so it sort of gets better and better they've been collecting um, data on inpatient psychiatric um, diagnoses since the 70s, so essentially for the whole of this um, cohort that we're talking about here, but then over the years they've kind of gradually picked up more and more sources of data. So um, they had CAMS diagnoses, which is Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, which is what I do since 2001, um, and outpatient data for adults since 98. So you can see that it sort of gets richer and richer in more recent times. Can I just ask you, that's yeah. all different uh, reporting history. They're all reporting in the same way, so they'll all be using they'll all be using the most um, recent um, ICD criteria, um, but it's just getting the data from extra places. So in it, for a long time, inpatient units have been required to sort of submit their figures, and more recently, and you piece it together through through the through the record through the linkage, record linkage. Yeah, yeah, and they sort of fight for the the ethics of being allowed to do that. 
the costs of doing that, which no one really wants to pick up. Um, so in this study, we looked at eating disorders as an outcome in girls aged 16 to 20. And the reason that we did that is because the school system in Sweden um, works such that people move schools at the age of 15. So they're in a sort of, I don't know, kind of lower secondary school um, from age 11 to age 15, and then they move on to their gymnasium um, from age 15 to 18. And the other thing that we know is people tend, to, there's always a bit of a delay um, in people actually presenting into services from initially having a problem. So we wanted to give them a chance to have, to let their new school environment have an effect on them and then catch them before they, you know, when they finally presented into services. And we used um, any diagnosis as an inpatient or an outpatient of any eating disorder. And we also included attendance at specialist eating disorder clinics, which previous um, researchers who've used the cohort have found is pretty robust, it's pretty equivalent to um, presenting and getting an actual diagnostic code. Uh, so we included this subset who left their gymnasium between 2001 and 2010, just because of that was when we, that gave us enough sort of follow-up time. And we required them to be at a school with more than 10 pupils, because we thought that schools with fewer than 10 pupils were really data entry errors rather than actually schools with fewer than 10 pupils. We said they had to have a final exam result, so we, were, we kind of wanted the school environment to have had their full effect, but that, that will mean that we haven't necessarily, well, we won't have included students whose eating disorders they were so severe that they never completed their schooling. And we said that they had to have had no previous eating disorder diagnosis. And we also said that they had to have been born in Sweden, and that was just so that we could have data on their parents, um, because people who um, people whose parents were migrating into the country, we would miss out on a huge amount of data about them. And we also said they had to be female, just because of this big disparity between um, males and females in terms of rates of eating disorders. Um, so then we had the first of the, of the obstacles, which was that we couldn't tell which school was which. So we had the school numbers, we knew, we knew which people were at which school, but we didn't know which school number referred to which school. Um, so we couldn't sort of go, we couldn't directly work out, say, the proportion of girls in the school. So what we did was we used the actual, the information about the subjects that we had to sort of generate school level variables about the number of girls and the number of highly educated parents the proportion of people who's, who were born abroad or whose parents were born abroad and um, different levels of income. So by the time we'd sort of done all of this, cutting down because of the ages and the t dates and so forth, we, had, we ended up with about um, 55,000 girls attending about 400 gymnasium. And we had 27 2.37% diagnosed with an eating disorder, which is probably um, about right in terms of people actually getting into services and getting treatment in that age group. And this is how it varied between schools when you just look at the crude data. So there were some schools where they only had 1.3% getting a diagnosis of an eating disorder and other schools where they had almost 17%. Um, so it kind of looks like there's a bit of a range. Um, and I'm also just going to highlight this for you. So the Swedish school system is quite different from the UK school system in that they, um, don't, they don't have any single-sex schools. And the Swedish researchers that I work with are really shocked when I told them that we do in the UK. 
sort of like, that would be illegal in Sweden. I said, what, you've got a specific law that says you can't have single-sex schools? They said, no, but we have gender equality laws. And they say everyone has to have sort of equal access to... Um, so, the, um, well, I come to, on to talk about the UK study later. In the UK, there's a nice normal distribution of the proportion of girls in schools with spikes at both ends, where there's 100% boys or 100% girls. And the Swedish data is just normally distributed. There is still a normal distribution, which I think is related to the fact that the gymnasiums offer different curriculums. <coughs> so some things will kind of attract greater numbers of um, males or females, but they all have the, the sort of criteria that, that anyone can attend. Um, so what we looked at was we did some slightly complicated statistics in which we we tried to pull apart what happens at an individual level from what happens at a school level. And what I'm showing you here is the odds of getting an eating disorder with changing levels of school variables. So um, the uh, axis along the bottom is looking at the percentage of female students in the school and how that relates to the odds of getting an eating disorder. So you can see that the greater the number of girls in a school increases your chance of getting an eating disorder. It looks like if you have a greater number of students in a school who are born outside Sweden, that makes it less likely that an individual student is going to develop an eating disorder. The kind of higher performing schools, so with exam scores in the top quintile um, of all schools, that increases your risk. So does income, so does having... Um, parents with post-school education, so more highly educated parents. And it looks as though maybe, again, there's a bit of a thing about um, having, a, having a higher number of immigrants decreasing the number of eating disorders. So that's sort of looking at each of the school-level factors in turn, and then I wanted to just see whether there were any of those school-level factors that were sort of more important than others. And so we adjusted all of those analyses for the number of the percentage of parents with post-school education, because it seems like that's quite an important thing in eating disorders from the individual level data. Um, and you can see that the ones that hold, once you do that, the things that kind of remain important, are still having a higher number of girls in a school, and um, obviously having one or both parents with post-school education, because essentially that hasn't been adjusted for. But we adjusted for that with each of the other variables in turn, and that holds, that still seems to be a really important factor. So it feels like overall the school-level things that are important are the number of girls and the number of highly educated parents. Those seem to be the things that increase your risk as an individual student of getting an eating disorder. So just to put this in another way, I'm not sure how familiar you are with... I know that some of you probably work mainly with... Um, qualitative data, so this is all a bit sort of a horrible blinding graph. Um, I, I've just put it as a probability for an individual average girl. So if she were to go to a school where half of the parents had um, higher education, so post-school education, and half of the other students were girls, she'd have about a 2% risk of developing an eating disorder. If she were to go to a school where three-quarters of the parents had post-high school education and three-quarters of the students were girls, she would have an increased risk of developing an eating disorder in that different environment. Um, 
so we um, we took out we we had initially extrapolated into what would happen in a UK kind of 100% 100% type environment, and then the reviewers got very cross with us, so we took that out. So we said we can't really do that. Swedish data doesn't really cover that. So I guess there are a few reasons why it might be that that seems to be the case. One might be that eating disorders are contagious in some way. So people in a school environment where some people have eating disorders and they can spread, and then you end up with dis discrepancies between schools. <coughs> um, it could be that some school cultures encourage eating disorders, obviously not an intentional thing. But it could, of course, be that some schools are just better than others at identifying students with eating disorders. We haven't ruled out the possibility that, there are, that all schools have about the same number of people with eating disorders, but some schools are really you know, good at spotting them and making sure they get help. And it would sort of make sense that if you had a higher proportion of girls in your school and you had a very educated sort of parental group that that would be the sort of school where they would be really good at spotting girls who are getting into difficulties and making sure that they got help. Um, so we tried to look at that as that third possibility by looking at um, other referrals into child and adolescent mental health services. Is there something about having a highly educated parental group that means you know, you're just much more adept to getting your kids help? And that doesn't seem to be the case. So there isn't evidence that having more highly educated parents gets kids more, more help generally in child and adolescent mental health services, but it could be that eating disorders are different. So then I think the other thing that's really, really important is, um, and I think this is probably will, will ring true in this group where you're going out into communities and trying to understand what's really happening in communities rather than once people get over the threshold of you know, accessing secondary health care. Um, lots of people with eating disorders don't get treatment. So in the States, probably a maximum of about just over a quarter of people get treatment for an eating disorder when you actually talk to the population. It's a bit higher in Holland, where they have a health service that's probably more equivalent to Sweden. But it's still like half, so we're missing a lot of people who have eating disorders. And there's, I guess there's a really big question about what are the differences between people who we see in clinic and people who never get to clinic. Um, you know, I think when other um, illnesses have been studied sort of more closely at a population level, we tend not to find that there's that sort of inverse socioeconomic pattern where people who are more highly educated and more wealthy and more likely to get the, di the, di the, uh, the disorder. That's pretty unusual it's more likely to be that you're just missing people who aren't so wealthy or so highly educated. Um, so I was based in Bristol, and there's this nice sort of potentially complementary study there, which you um, may have heard about, which is the Children of the 90s study, or the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children, ALSPAC, um, which is a lovely cohort. They started it in the early 90s, um, and they started studying pregnant women. So um, they were picking people up at their sort of initial midwife visits and getting them to, to sign up to have multiple questionnaires. And they started off with over 14,000 pregnant women and they've got questionnaire and clinic data um, yearly since. So the kids are now, I can do the maths, 
they're now getting, we're now, we've now got data in, on people who are in their early 20s and they're beginning to look at the children of the children of the 90s study because um, some of those um, children have got children of their own. Um, it obviously has problems which are different from the Swedish um, data but uh, essentially what happens is that people drop out of long cohort studies. Most of the 14,500 um, women are not returning questionnaires any, anymore. Um, and, the, and the dropout's differential. So people who are more highly educated and um, wealthier are more likely to have remained within the study. And they've now got, depending on the outcome you look at, um, perhaps about 4,000 of those people left sort of still contributing actively to the study. So um, the other thing, the other really annoying thing about Alzheimer's is that for some reason they didn't look properly at eating disorders, really. Um, so we have, they have really good data on things like depression as a kind of definite clinical outcome and they've done clinical interviews. We don't have that. But we do have some things which are related to eating disorder pathology. So we've got weight and shape concern reports um, in 14-year-old girls. And we've got the reason that the numbers are smaller obviously is because, again, I'm taking out boys from this. And we've got um, complementary sort of parent questionnaires about restrictive eating or fear of weight gain, which kind of captures um, anorexia-type presentations. That's 14. In 16, we've, 16-year-olds, we've got questions about um, a wider range of behaviours relating to eating. So binge eating fasting, purging, which kind of captures vomiting and laxative use. And we've got that parent-rated measure again. Um, so I wanted to look and see whether we kind of got similar findings when we were looking at this community-based study, which wasn't relying on people presenting into services. You know, if, if eating disorder behaviours do spread within schools, then you should, you, you might be able to see that in, in a study like Alzheimer's. Um, and again, we've got quite a wide range of possible explanatory variables. In fact, because of the sort of size and complexity of, of Alzheimer's, you've got almost limitless potential explanatory variables that you could put into it. But we've um, tried to sort of limit things to make it a bit more manageable. Um, so we've got things which are at an individual level, like maternal age and maternal educational level, um, social class of the parents mum's parity and um, maternal depression and in fact also uh, maternal previous eating disorder um, and then for the, for the Alspect data we do actually know which school is which which is quite nice so we can actually know whether schools were mixed schools or all girls <coughs> schools we know their average exam grades um, we know things like whether they have a school nurse what percentage of children are on free school meals we do have ethnicity ethnicity data, but Avon um, County, when they started this study, was just really, really white, very white British, so very, very small numbers of um, people from different ethnicities, so we, I haven't used that variable very much because it's just not, um, there's not a lot of variability. Um, so the problem really is that, <laughs> is on the top line of this chart, the number of Alzheimer's girls per study school by the time they're 14, they're all sort of spread. They're not even necessarily in Avon anymore, and they're attending over 200 schools. So the median number of students who, whose data we have in ALSPAC um, per school is one, 
which makes it quite hard to look at clustering. There's a range, it goes up to nine. We've got one school, we've got kind of about 95. Um, but really, we've got very, very few students per school. And then there's some kind of... Um, I always find this quite shocking data about um, rates of people who are unhappy about the way they look. So this is 14-year-olds, you know, 14-year-old girls, and... Um, 20% of them have got a kind of clinical range level of concern about their weight or shape. Um, by the time they're 16, 20% of them are reporting that they fast with the aim of trying to lose weight. Um, just over 10% of them have got um, some kind of disordered behaviour relating to their eating that, that's, that is at a diagnostic level, so meeting DSM-5 criteria for um, that behaviour being being eating disorder level, um, yeah, which is just quite sad. Um, so what we tried to do was similar to what we'd done in the Swedish data, which was to build a multi-level model where we took account of what was happening at a school level and what was happening at an individual level. But um, I think because of the because of, because we basically only had one girl in a lot of schools, adding in school as a level didn't really do anything. It didn't, it didn't explain any of the variance between um, what was happening in terms of people's eating disorder behaviours. And I think, um, and we've had sort of lots of very long discussions with my um, statistician about this, that, we're, that we don't find any clustering because really we don't have enough girls to make clusters. So we've only got one girl per school, you can't really say anything about what's happening in terms of whether that behaviour that she, that she is exhibiting is spreading to other girls. So we had to take a bit of a different um, line on this, and what we decided to look at was whether there were still school-level characteristics that seemed to make a difference in terms of whether people um, had eating disorder behaviours, rather than looking at whether the... Um, whether it's in just a cluster within individual schools, which we just couldn't do. So at age 14, it sort of initially looks like we've got a, um, an opposite way round from what we would expect from the, all the data that I've shown you before about diagnosed eating disorders in terms of high-performing schools. So we've got some data that suggests that actually if your school is in the top 25% of um, exam results at key stage three, um, that decreases your chance of having worries about your weight or shape. And similarly, that if your school is, has the sort of resources to have a school nurse, then that reduces your chance of having worries about your weight and shape. That's an unadjusted model, and that all goes away, in fact, when you adjust for individual and school level variables that I went through went through earlier, so it looks, that it look, looks like at age 14, school environment doesn't seem to be having a big effect on um, weight and shape concerns. So at age 16, we've got some more of that sort of reverse of what we would expect in terms of the academic schools. So again, it looks like being at a more academic school is protective against fasting behaviours and against um, that sort of wider range of um, eating disorder behaviours, which is opposite from what happens when you look at people who are actually diagnosed in clinic. 
but we've got something that's maybe a bit consistent with our Swedish results. Um, all girls versus mixed schools who've got a bit of a higher chance <coughs> of having um, compensatory behaviours that don't quite meet diagnostic threshold. Um, the Actually, the numbers of girls at all girls schools, even within this sample, is only about 90. Um, so there's quite wide confidence intervals around that. But it sort of suggested that maybe that is going in the same direction as the um, results from the Swedish study. So this is just showing what happens when you add in other, uh, when you when you add when you adjust for individual and then school level variables. And this is saying um, about the exam results. So again, that high performing schools. Um, it, if you're at a school that's doing really well in terms of your exam results, that seems to decrease your risk of fasting or having this wider range of um, eating disorder behaviours at, at a diagnostic level. There we go, didn't know there was any pointer. Um, and this is just showing that the results for all girls versus mixed schools also hold once you've adjusted for individual and school level variables. So um, it does look like maybe being at an all-girls school does increase your risk um, of compensatory behaviours, so purging fasting behaviours. So I think I've covered this really, this limitation about um, not really having very many students in any one individual school. Um, and um, the other thing that may be going on in this sample, which we can't really do anything about, is the differential dropout, um, which is the bit where if you're um, more highly educated and wealthier and so on, then you're more likely to stay within the study, might mean that we actually end up with quite a homogeneous group by the time we get to ages of 14 and 16. Maybe there aren't huge difference, there aren't such big differences between people as there would have been if um, we'd managed to keep everyone within the study. Um, so it's sort of interesting to think about with, re with relation to previous findings. It is um, kind of consistent with um, the results from the US population study that I talked about right at the start, where, it, where they also found that weights of um, disordered eating behaviours did seem to vary a bit between schools. Um, and then there are similarities and differences that I think I highlighted between this study and the record linkage study, which I think are probably... I've sort of put a number of question marks at the bottom. I think they're probably mostly due to who presents into services and that not being everybody. But I think also we, we probably haven't found any evidence of clustering because we've just got numbers that are too small. And there are clearly differences between the UK and Sweden, and I think it's interesting that we found that um, where there are differences which are related to school environment, we've only found them at age 16, we haven't found them at age 14. And that kind of fits with the, with what we found in the Swedish data, but also I think with the um, ideas around adolescents that are in a sort of wider um, psychiatry research, but also sort of psychology research, looking at the at the as you sort of go through adolescence, your peer group becomes more and more important, really, on the decisions that you make. Whereas when you're sort of younger, then that's less important. just going to talk a little bit in the last few minutes about possible mechanisms, why there might be differences between 
schools, why we might have found those differences within the Swedish data. Um, so first is this idea that eating disorders might be contagious. So there's a, there have been ideas around for a long time about social comparison. So there's sort of, you know, you look at other people and you compare yourself to them and then um, you can, that can make you feel really rubbish about yourself because largely people, when they do social comparison, tend to compare upwards. They're always looking at people who are better than them. They tend not to go, oh, I'm so much better than the majority of people. Um, and in fact, you do <coughs> find that people are more dissatisfied with their bodies in areas with lower average BMI. And this result about, that I also talked about earlier, that schools with more underweight girls, individual girls, are more likely to be trying to lose weight. So you can see how in a school where some people are losing weight and experiencing eating disorders, that might be something that spreads because other people are kind of competitive and they want to be as thin as that other girl. Um, we also know from sort of uh, studies which have tried to look at friendship groups, which is really, really difficult research to do, that extreme weight loss behaviours um, seem to run in friendship groups and it's, it's a bit difficult to tell whether that's because you become friends with people who are like you or because um, you, you've sort of learned from the things that your friends are doing and you want to be doing similar kinds of things. Um, and the other idea is that something about a school culture might somehow encourage eating disorders. So um, we know that like Tweaks in people's, so in people's in physical and experienced environments can change their behaviour. So, for example, it's not massively surprising that if you have a school salad bar, then people are more likely to be able to be buying fruit and vegetables than if there isn't a school salad bar. Um, more sort of subtly and in relation to eating disorders, probably quite pertinently, there's um, some evidence that suggests that girls who are perfectionistic and are more likely to, um, to be at risk of developing an eating disorder. And um, you can see how a school environment might be really striving to um, get their, their, their girls or, their, or all their students to achieve um, and to do the best that they possibly can. And that might be really useful in some areas, but it might be unhelpful in areas like appearance. And there's a bit of research that suggests that if you're in a single sex as opposed to a mixed school, then girls there are more likely to associate intelligence and professional success with being thinner. So that might not be very helpful for them. Um, so where does this leave us in terms of the implications? Because I'm, um, you know, I'm a clinician. It would be good if we could sort of do something to either prevent people developing eating disorders in the first first place or sort of make sure that they're getting early intervention because we know that that's really helpful and um, people having better outcomes. Um, I think it leaves us a bit stuck, actually, because it potentially could be useful to develop school interventions, but I don't think when... I don't, apart from... I think there is now a suggestion that probably all girls' schools aren't great and that might be a good place to intervene. We've got really conflicting evidence, actually, about the other work, you know, is it better to be in a highly achieving school with lots of highly educated parents or actually is it better to be in a school that's doing less well? Which of those schools is at greater risk? Because from the Swedish study it definitely looked like the more um, highly educated environments were at higher risk but from the 
um, ASPAC findings, it kind of suggests the opposite, really. So, um, I've, been, I've been working clinically in Oxford, and Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services have recently expanded to have people who are going into all secondary schools um, once a week, so they have a kind of link worker. And I think maybe that's the sort of approach we should be taking, actually, making sure that all schools are getting better and you know, having better links with, with psychiatry services and making sure that they're all kind of aware of potential problems with eating and those um, young people are all getting help. Um, so it's just an interesting case study that I came, came across just after I'd moved to Oxford, which is, this is Oxford High, so they, do, they are one of the places that sort of send, send our send their children to, into our eating disorder services locally. And they, their headmistress said, I think we need to discourage perfectionism in our girls. How do we go about discouraging perfectionism? Um, Nature, they had a, a scheme which they called the death of little Miss Perfect, in which they tried to encourage girls not to be so perfectionistic. It's actually quite a tricky thing to do. Um, so I just would like to acknowledge the various people that I've worked with. So... Um, colleagues at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden who've been hugely helpful in understanding their data. Um, my Bristol supervisor who then moved to uh, UCL and um, Nadia McCulley who's a very good eating disorder researcher and clinician. Um, Bianca de Savala who's been a fantastically helpful and supportive statistician as I've tried to sort of make sense of what I'm finding, and um, my supervisor from Bristol, Jonathan Evans. So it would be really useful to just sort of open the floor really and have a discussion about what I've found and where we take it from here. Thank you very Thank you. much.